Welcome to the deep sea. Today we meet Don, whose son Ollie was seven years old when he was diagnosed with ALCL and during treatment lost his sight. You'll hear how Don turned her agony into advocacy and now supports the cancer and blind communities on a large scale by sitting on multiple boards and organizations committed to making big changes and how she also helps on a small scale by supporting families and caregivers, as she says, by passing the buckets of water back to those who are still in the fire. I love Dawn. I can't wait for you to meet her. My name is Sam Taylor. I'm the parent to a childhood cancer survivor and the host of the Deep Sea Podcast, where we come together to talk to parents, caregivers, friends, and professionals who have been affected by childhood cancer. Hearing your child has been diagnosed can feel a lot like being ripped from life on land to suddenly being submerged deep into the ocean. It's disorienting, it's scary, and sometimes it's really hard to breathe. This podcast is for all of us who have supported a child through their diagnosis. It's where we'll come together to share the skills and coping strategies that have made it a little easier for us to breathe down here. But it's also a place for us to connect, to feel heard, to find support, and to swim each other to shore. So let's dive deep. The best way I can describe Dawn is to bring you back to high school and ask you to remember that student council president or one of those kids who just kind of ran the school, the one who knew everyone and who had an in with all the teachers and was part of every club. But on top of that, they were also really smart and really kind and friendly and always made an effort, even back then, to make sure that every student was doing okay and getting by in the very rough waters of high school. Dawn is that person. She's the president of the club, but in our case, of course, it's a club that none of us want to be in. We didn't try out to be on this team, but we're here. So we might as well follow the same framework as any club would and have someone who's leading the way. When my daughter was first diagnosed, fate intervened and Dawn entered the picture. She was the first parent I met with a child who had cancer. And she just knew how to walk me through those first terrifying steps that we all take. Don's son, Ollie, was seven when he was diagnosed with ALCL after she noticed a tiny bump on his neck that wasn't going away. After months of trying to get answers with multiple doctors suggesting it was cat scratch disease or tuberculosis, they finally got a biopsy that concluded it was cancer. Treatment began. Ollie relapsed, and with the cancer cells now in his central nervous system, they attached themselves to his optic nerves. After waking up from a lumbar puncture, Ollie was really groggy and asked to have the lights turned on. Dawn was sitting there under the bright fluorescent beams of the recovery room, and I guess she just assumed he was still coming out of it. But when Ollie persisted, she could tell something was very wrong. After more testing, they learned that Ollie's cancer had caused severe optic nerve atrophy, resulting in his permanent loss of sight. Now blind, Ollie continued treatment 
including a stem cell transplant using his older sister as his donor. And this is all during COVID. The reason why Dawn is such a leader to me is because she took all of this agony and channeled it into advocacy. You'll hear how she dove deep into both the cancer and blind communities, how she connects and supports and has made massive improvements to not only the organization she's part of, but to the people's lives that she touches on a daily basis. I mean, for proof of this, go take a look at the links in the show notes for today's episode. Dawn has impacted every single one of those groups, and that doesn't include the hundreds of individual families that she has sat with, walked beside, and held up when they couldn't make it on their own. I adore Dawn. I look up to her like that really cool and popular senior in high school who knows the ropes and who takes you under their wing and stays beside you through all the lessons and experiences we go through in these particular phases of life. Hearing Dawn speak makes me feel safe and it makes me feel less alone. And it makes me feel like if she can do it, so can I. I think you'll feel the same. So let's dive deep with Dawn. One thing that I did want to just highlight is because I know you obviously, and I know your story and Ollie's story and your family's story, which I I look forward to sharing right now. I look forward to us talking about it. But um, one thing that you have really done is turn a nightmare, a a very very scary scary situation into something that brings a lot of families hope. And you have really become a lighthouse in the community of um, parent uh, childhood cancer. And when people are in treatment, when families are in treatment, like a lot of people who are listening right now, they're in treatment, they have a hard time thinking on the other side that they'll be that family who runs the races and raises the money and you know, does the podcast, whatever it is, they think, how on earth do those parents do that? Because we are in such a depth right now. We are in such darkness right now. The idea of coming on the other side of it and making something hopeful feels impossible. And I would hate for a family to hear your story and think, oh God, I'll never be able to do that because we know they can, you know, we know they can. Because you have been to the depths of the depth with your son's diagnosis and treatment. You have been as dark as it gets. So I thought maybe we could start there. <laughs> and <laughs> on that note, we could start there and just share the trajectory of how you went from being in the dark to being truly a lighthouse for so many families in this community. And the start is usually the diagnosis. So could you share a little bit about Ollie's diagnosis? Sure. So Ollie was seven years old in uh, November of 2019, um, and he had had a slow-growing bump on his neck um, since about July, so about you know four months by the time we got to diagnosis. 
Um, and when we finally did sort of have a biopsy done, you know, after all the many tests and what have you at the hospital, uh, and they confirmed it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then a week later that it was anaplastic large cell lymphoma, ALK positive, um, you know, that was obviously, you know, the worst possible thing that I can, uh, well, maybe the second worst possible thing that I could imagine ever happening to my child. I think those of us who have been, you know, through the the depths of everything with cancer recognize that, you know, this isn't the worst. The worst is losing your child, period, right? So I'm, I'm always very mindful of that when people say to me, oh my God, you've been through the worst. No, I, I haven't. I've been close to the worst, but I haven't had mm-hmm. the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, all of that obviously uh, changes everything about your family life. You literally go from being a quote unquote normal family, whatever that is, to all of a sudden being a cancer family um, with no training, you know, absolutely no idea of what it is that you're going to be immersed in. Right. Um, no, no mentors, right? Nobody you know. If you think about it, I think I knew one person who had ever had childhood, you know, cancer in their lives. Um, and I wouldn't say we were super close. It's just a family I knew in our community. Um, so, you know, I really, I didn't, I didn't have any sense of what was going to happen and how things were going to play out. And, and I'm a naturally optimistic person, right? So despite, you know, being obviously really scared and what have you, um, we approached it from the outset that we were just, you know, we were going to get through this, right? And they initially told us six to eight rounds of chemo. And we were like, okay, you know, like eight months from now, give or take, we're going to be done. He's going to be good. Um, and then, you know, he ended up relapsing um, in his, his central nervous system after round two of, of chemo uh, and lo- lost his sight um, and was in the pediatric ICU and, you know, um, fighting for his life quite literally uh, with dangerously low sodium and seizures and all kinds of things. So this is the sort of thing I think that's that's really, you know, bizarre about the whole world. Uh, even if you start in it being, being fairly optimistic or looking for your glass to be half full, these moments and things happen to you throughout it that can totally shake your, you know, faith, your determination, your hope. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, and we were lucky enough that when those things would happen to us, our community, right, so many people would reach out um, and help us in a a million uh, tiny ways that were the hugest thing in the moment when we needed it. Um, And also, you know, as our sort of journey unfolded and became much more difficult, uh, friends wrote, wrote to me and said, listen, I have this friend, right, who is a cancer parent and has been through the fire and has come out on the other side, and can I connect you to them? Because um, I didn't start out knowing a whole bunch of people in the cancer community. That's, well, exactly. You know, it's not something you do. No, it's not something that it's – it's, as you know, it's not the most common diagnosis, obviously. It is tricky to find other families who are in this same – on the same planet, we'll call it. Yep. But – when you're in treatment, I feel like there are some families who are head down. They just need to get through it. They don't know how to be resourceful. They don't have the energy to be resourceful. But then there are parents like yourself, like myself, who actually needed the contact of other parents who were in treatment because it was so lonely. And, you know, God love my husband, but he was not, he was an internal processor. He wanted, he was the head down parent who just wanted to get through treatment. Whereas I was tapping on people's shoulders in line at the pharmacy saying, oh, hi, happened to have the same diagnosis. Like I would have talked to anybody about it, right? So there's all these different types of ways to uh, process obviously what's going on. But let's talk a little bit more about uh, 
you know, you talk about having your glass half full and you are an optimistic person. Absolutely. But that's in the normal world. You know, that is when things are generally anticipated, when life is going as expected. When something, this fracturing happens, that must impact your lens. That must change the way that you see things. Tell me a little bit about how you adjusted your optimism, your half full glass to something so jarring and uncertain. I I think that, you know, it would be very easy to slide down into depression and to, you know, sadness and anger and all the sort of so-called negative feelings. I don't think any of them are negative feelings. I think they're perfectly natural. And I let myself feel those things because I think that's really important. Um, Often I felt them in a more private way than the rest of my sort of public uh, persona in in cancer. But that being said, like we wrote a blog, of course, you know, throughout um, treatment. And for me, it was a good way to process and I, I've gone back and read my blog, you know, different moments. And it's always kind of shocking to me how, you know, incredibly honest I was about how I was feeling about things. And you can read in that a sense of desperation, I think, right, uh, throughout everything that we went through. Can you give um, can you and, give examples of how, how sure. raw and honest you were? Yeah, you know, so when he first relapsed, for example, I mean, I think that was really for me the the pivotal moment when I realized, you know, my optimism isn't necessarily going to be enough to get us through this, right, that we're going to really need to have, um, you know, an incredible medical team who's just on top of everything. And we're going to need to, you know, have people around us helping us in a myriad of of ways that I can't even imagine right now. And we're going to need to you know, think about how we're going to fund all of this uh, now that we have to go for treatment in Toronto for a stem cell transplant and so on during the very beginning of the pandemic, which, you know, I mean, that in and of itself was enough to make anyone, you know, completely lose their mind. Uh, Sometimes I wonder how I didn't. Um, But for me, it was singular focus, right? Like I knew that if I let myself it's not to say that people let themselves don't get me wrong i understand depression is like something that is very hard you can't control it without meds and so on but i i guess for me it was like my determination was greater than you know anything else and i i just knew that if i was to you know sort of not be completely 100 percent you know focused on him getting well and doing everything i could to make that happen that he likely wouldn't survive um, and it's not that I was his, you know, his his god or that I was the be all end all. He had an entire team. All of us had to work together. But I was the driving force. I mean, I recognize that, right? It's not a pat on the back thing. It's a necessity thing. I am his mother, and I could not conceive of a world that he wasn't in. Right. And so, I, you know, I really just had to start to find the people and find the information. So, so, so you were you were seeking out not only support as a parent, but also support for treatment. You were trying to put together a treatment plan alongside your medical team, which I just, I, I, I can feel the fierce power behind that as a parent. I can feel it. Like when you say that you, okay, well, you don't know a path. We're going to find one. You don't have any medical training. You don't have any science background, but that didn't seem to bother you at all. And That primal force that comes out in a parent when their child's life is at stake, I I hate that we need to know that feeling because it is really a complicated feeling. 
it is, like I said, primal. It is the, you know, when we talk about fight or flight, it is the epitome of the word fight. There is something that you are facing and it is terrifying. It is, it is a beast that you don't even have the right tools for. You don't know how you're going to conquer it. But because your child's life is at stake, you will find a way. And I don't know if enough parents give themselves credit for that power and they don't see that power in them enough. And I, I sit now and you and I both sit on the other side of our, of our kids' treatment and I look back at that force and I think, you know, had my child not been put in this precarious place, had my child's life not been in question, had I, would I have ever been able to discover this force inside of me? And the answer is no. So, you know, am I glad I had to access it? Of course not. But now that I know it's there, it has really changed the way that I've lived. I live. I now go about life completely differently, knowing I have this force inside of me, right? Totally. Yeah. I, I actually like to refer to it a bit as an awakening. Yeah. Right? That's really a great is. word. It's like, it's a, it's this, this thing that, that, you know, the gift of cancer that actually, and it is, it's a gift. It's, it's, it's an awareness level that is beyond anything you can possibly imagine um, in terms of knowing, you know, the role that you play in helping your child to survive. I just um, have to ask and, you one quick question. Sorry. Yeah, and I don't, I, okay. I'm sorry to cut you off, but when you say the gift of cancer, this is a very interesting topic to me because again, if you are in the middle of treatment right now, if you are bedside and your child is sick, to hear it's someone curse. say <laughs> the gift of cancer, you might say, yeah. I got to go. This, this is not, you guys are crazy. Right. Let's explain that a little bit because sure. I, I 100% understand what you're saying and I want to be able to unpack it a bit. Well, I think, you know, when you're in the throes of it, it feels like a curse, yes. right? It, there's a lot of why me? I mean, the kids used to say that all the time, right? Why me? Why me? Why does it happen to me? Oliver would say that or Abby would say that, you know, why me? Why my family? And I would say why anyone, right? First of all, it's really unfair that anybody has to go through any of this, right? Um, but, you know, I, I think that, um, so you feel really cursed, right? And you wonder to some degree, why is it happening to me and it doesn't happen to anybody else? There's only 1,500 kids in all of Canada that get cancer in a year. Why is mine one of them? Right. Right. Um, and, you know, so so there is that during treatment. And I, I think that's perfectly normal for anybody to feel that way. Um, and and it, as you get through it, when you get to the other side, I think you understand how incredibly blessed you are that you're walking away with your child. And if you're lucky enough like us to walk away with fairly few, um, you know, sort of so far anyway, long-term effects. I mean, obviously Ollie is blind. That's something we'll talk yeah, about. Yeah, I was going to say, more, but, for you to say but that that's is... a blessing too. Yeah. It's a crazy thing, right? You would say his it's, blindness is a blessing too. It is, you know, and it's, I've asked him about this. It's interesting because I'll say to him, you know, Al, Ollie, you know, are you ever sad that you can't see anymore, right? That you're, that you're unable to sort of use your vision and you lost it to cancer. Um, and he's 11 and, and his outlook is just absolutely unbelievable to me sometimes. And he said, mom, I don't even think about it. It's just who I am now. And he's like, you know, we've tried very hard to make him understand that, you know, when you lose something, sometimes you gain other things, right? And in his case, losing his sight has meant that his other, you know, senses are absolutely heightened, no question. Um, but that also, 
he kind of like you were talking about before, you know, this this crazy power that you have. He has that too, not only for having survived cancer and a stem cell transplant during the pandemic, but also because he is relearning to do absolutely everything, right, blind. And I say to him, you know, you have to do things, you have to work so much harder to be able to do the same things as everyone else. And that doesn't make you less capable. That makes you more capable, mm -hmm. right? Than anybody I know. So I think there's that. I think that, you know, it's, that's, that's the blessing. That's the gift. These, these things come out of it that at, in the moment, you just think are this, these horrible, terrible curses. But later on, when you look back and, and you're able to look at them with some level of objectivity, right? To understand how your life has changed the whole trajectory of your life and his has changed because of it that it's not all bad right yes there's bad stuff there's bad feelings it sucks that you get triggered you know and that you're always going to have to overcome some of these things i wish his life was easier that's the truth of course right but i also know what an incredibly resilient and positive you know person he is and the confidence that he has, because we work with him constantly to do the advocacy and the awareness raising that he wants to help us do, you know, that he is going to do the most incredible things. He's already done the most incredible things, but he's going to do even more incredible things his whole life long. And would he have done any of those things, right, if it weren't for the situation that he was put in? I think we're all thrust into situations we don't want to be in, right, that we certainly didn't ask for and seem like terrible things. But most people who have been through these, you know, horrific, you know, terrible situations find a way to turn it into something good, right? To say, ultimately, my life going forward will be different in the most positive of ways because of what I've learned through this. You, you did tell me about a breakdown that you had during Ollie's relapse. Mm -hmm. And I believe he was on steroids and he was really, you know, affected by the steroids. It really altered his mood and he really went into quite a state of mm -hmm. suffering and rage. Yeah. And you had opened up and told me that that was a time that you really allowed yourself to cry and to have a breakdown. Yeah. So I'm just curious what, the dawn today with your strategies and your perspective, what would you have said to the dawn having the breakdown such early on in your, in your cancer treatment? Mm -hmm. What would you have said to her? How would you have supported her? You know, I would probably just hold myself. Mm -hmm. I would hold myself and I would hug myself and I would just sort of say, it is going to be okay. You're going to make it through this, right? Um, and and as I say, I hope I would believe myself that way, but I don't think I would believe, hey, three years from now, you know, you guys are going to be good. You'll have processed more of the big, most of the big feelings about this. You'll be huge advocates for cancer, you know, childhood cancer awareness and for blindness. Your son is going to be thriving, right? He is literally going to you know, set the world on fire yeah. with his ability to speak about everything that has happened to him um, and, you know, use that for positive action and to make things better in, in both worlds um, for kids like him. You know, like I, I don't I couldn't have conceived where we would be today then. Right. So um, but I, I like to think that at least if I'd hugged myself and promised myself it would be OK, I would believe myself. I think that's a great uh, visual, to be honest with you hugging yourself 
then, having compassion for yourself then. I know that a lot of families who are going through treatment have a hard time getting the right support from their community because so many people want to just make it better. Someone will come along and say, oh, well, you know, he'll be okay. And really, how do you know that? You've got, yeah. you've got this. Everything is going to be fine. I never say that to no, families anymore. You can't ever. cheer no. someone out of trauma. You can't cheer someone out of pain. And I think there's a lot of beauty in sitting with someone. And I I can just sort of picture you holding your hand, you know, and not trying to solve any problems, not trying to, you know, make anything better, just sitting with you in that pain. There is something so powerful about that. And I think that that's a strategy that I now use. I use it today when I'm having a hard time. I used it quite a lot during treatment where I would just sit with myself. You know, I pictured my future self on the other side of this kind of pulling me through. That might sound crazy. It worked for me. It doesn't sound crazy at all. I I had to believe there was going to be a me on the other side. Yeah. And I had to believe that that version of me knew stuff that I didn't know at the, at the moment and that she was able to guide me through it. And I relied heavily on the future me during, during the hard times. And, and I think that's, you know, in part why sharing stories of hope are so important, right? Because if you're not in a position where you can imagine yourself sort of in your future state and everything being okay to whatever degree that is, that looks like, right, when the time comes, you find, or you're, if you're lucky, you either find or they find you, um, these parents who you get connected to who have literally walked through the fire, right, and and made it through, and they're on the other end. And there's there's like a I've seen seen this meme on Facebook, and I often share it when I see because I think it, it is so you know beautiful. And it talks about how you know parents who have walked through the fire, people who have walked through the fire, right, are the ones who are handing the buckets of water back right the, to the people behind them to try and help them through the fire the same way that they were helped. And I, I think that, you know, we're reaching their hand back, right? I you know, sort of think that way. So many hands were reached back to me as people heard about our journey because we were blogging about it and it was, you know, in social media and we were starting to do some awareness fairly early on, largely because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Pandemic happened and here we are in this situation where we're off to stem cell transplant at the very beginning of the pandemic. It was March of 2020. And the fear that I had around all of this while everyone else was sort of starting to lose their mind over the idea that they might be locked down in their house safely for (laughs) what we thought was a few weeks at the time. Meanwhile, I'm like, great, I would 100% like to be locked down at my house, you know, safe and not having that kind of the kind of anxiety that I have right now where I have to go out into this world and not only go out into this world, but then, you know, take my daughter, right, try and keep her well in that world and my son while she donates stem cells for him to get. I do want to talk about your daughter because you have this unique situation where because of the pandemic, like you said, the matches for your son's stem cell transplant were not able to get to you because of all the transportation issues. And I believe that the matches were in Europe or overseas and they weren't able to get to you. So that left your son with you, your husband and your daughter as potential Mm -hmm. matches. During COVID. I mean, Don, let's just sit with yeah. that for one second. <laughs> Your son is going through cancer treatment. He's lost his sight. 
And now his chance to survive is in your daughter's hands. Yeah. It was pretty big stuff, right? I mean, honestly, I never really wanted her to be the donor. We were each 50% matches, my husband, my daughter, and, and myself. Um, and that wasn't ideal. You're trying to get the best possible match. Um, so, you know, they when they told us, they called us literally like the week before we were supposed to be in Toronto um, and said, yes, sorry, pandemic's changing everything. It wasn't pandemic yet. It was just COVID-19, but, you know, starting to, to develop into what would become the pandemic. And um, and so they said, you know, we think your daughter's the best chance, right, um, for his survival at this point. And so I remember asking them, how is it possible that we're going to go from 100% full match to a 50% match and that that's actually going to work, right? Like how, and and I, what was going through my mind at the time was, A, I have to ask her, right? And and I desperate, I never wanted to put her in that position. What a huge position to put a child into, right? Um and, and yet she had been really adamant when we went and had our HLA testing done, she was like, it's going to be me and I'm going to do it. And I always said, I hope it's not yeah. right. Uh, because I just felt like, you know, I was worried about her, um, you know, one, what a heavy load it is to sort of even have to do this, this big medical thing uh, for him. And two, you know, what if it didn't work? Right. She'd have to live with the knowledge her whole life that, you know, her stem cells didn't fix her brother. Right. And even though it wouldn't be her fault and I did all of the work with her to try and make her understand that, you know, you can't help what people think. It's like teenage girls, no matter how many times you tell them they're beautiful and their bodies are perfect, somehow they seem to think they're not beautiful, they're ugly, it's you know, they're not skinny enough, whatever, right? So it's really heavy stuff to be dealing with, especially at that age as she's transitioning into, you know, the tween and teen years too. Can you tell me about the conversation you had with her when she came to you? and was unsure if she wanted to go ahead with it. And you had to mother her while Mm -hmm. also knowing that the outcome of this conversation could change Ollie's life. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a pretty, pretty hard moment, probably one of the hardest moments of cancer, to be honest, because um, we were talking about it. I was telling her, okay, the hospital has called and there's been a development and this is what they want now. They want it to be you. And her response at first, which kind of surprised me because she had been so adamant that she would do it, was, do I have to? And I had to take a big pause in that moment and like really center myself to have a very difficult conversation where I didn't get upset at her and think that she was being selfish or any of those things, you know, because I recognized in this moment, right, I have two children and I am literally asking one to save the other. And what a huge thing to ask her to do. But I kind of feel like I can't really ask her, right? Asking her is like, you know, putting this expectation on her that's really unfair. So she has to be kind of willing to do it. So I am I tried to frame it in a, this is what the hospital thinks should happen. Not a, I'm asking you to do this. Because I don't want her to feel like she's doing it because mom asked her. She has to be able to do it because she really wants to do it and she feels she can do it, right? And so I, I was trying to give her permission to sort of not do it while all the while you know, just like being in agony, like what if she doesn't do it? And so I, you know, in my, my brain, I'd kind of, I hadn't really puzzled out the situation, to be honest. I hadn't really anticipated that she would ask if she had to do it. Well, who can possibly, 
<laughs> who can have this conversation? Who can predict this kind of conversation? Right. So I said to her, you know, in the moment, she, she said, do I have to? And I said, no, it is your body. And it is a huge thing to choose to do. And it would be huge for any adult to make this, this choice too, right? You're literally in a situation where you have to go through medical procedures in order to give your stem cells to your brother. And the reality is it might not work, right? I tried to be as honest with her as possible. So, you know, you might do all of this and he still isn't cured. He still isn't, you know, isn't going to, to be able to stay with us. And you'd have to live with that knowledge your whole life. And I really don't want you to have to even make this choice. I wish you didn't have to. But then I also said to her, you know, but I, I'm going to take my mom hat off for a second. My mom of Abby and mom of Ollie and just want to tell you my human, I'm putting my human hat on right now. And I'm telling you that if you choose not to do this and dad cells or my cells, whatever we use, don't work, you equally have to live your whole life with the knowledge that you made a choice not to do this. And you might still feel guilty that you'll never know if you could have saved him, right? If he passes. So like you have the heaviest possible load on you right now, and I'm not trying to overburden you, but I want you to be able to weigh out and measure out, you know, all of your options before you make a choice. And in no way am I doing this to make you choose to do this for Ollie. I just think, you know, if I don't have this conversation with you, I don't tell you the reality of, you know, the all the possibilities that could spill out of this, then, you know, you won't be prepared for making the right decision, whatever it is for you, right? And the right decision isn't, you know, do it for Ollie. The right decision is whatever you think you can do or you need to do. And she was, yeah. right? God, Don, so these, was, these complicated... Oh, it was. It was a really complicated, very heavy conversation. It's one of the, the things I, you know, there are two things that I, I get terribly emotional about when I tell, and it's it's funny because they're both about Abby. You know, it's funny. You would think it would be about Ollie, right? The yeah. cancer kid. But truthfully, you know, he he was, was so stoic and did such a, you know, an amazing thing every single day. Everything about his journey, you know, he handled for the most part really fantastically considering his age and, you know, everything else. He had moments, of course, but for her, she had these like huge things that were not in any way. It wasn't her cancer, yeah, right? It wasn't hers. None of it was. And yet it has such a long lasting, huge impact on the person that she is and will become over time, right? And she doesn't want it to be, you know, she's the girl who saved her brother with stem cells, right? So she grapples with that whole whole part of it now that she's a teen. Um, but, you know, I, I think as I had this conversation with her and then another, the actual day that she donated was unbelievable. I can't think of a better word to describe it than epic, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's to sit there and watch your then 12-year-old daughter, you know, who like, uh, my best friend came with us for some of the pretests at Sick Kids. It was just like the very first week of of the beginning of lockdown, so I was still allowed to bring somebody into Sick Kids, and she met us there. And she still says to this day, you know, she's like, "It was unbelievable for me to sit there with you guys while you talked about, you know, all of the possible ramifications of of your twelve year old daughter donating her cells, and to watch her sit there in a room with all these doctors and consent and legally sign documents." to give her DNA away to her brother, right? With no real knowledge of how it would all work out, with all of the things that were sort of packed into that was unbelievable to me. She said, you know, that is the the, the true definition of courage right there, right? And of love, she couldn't imagine a more loving situation and I can't either, right? And watching her sit there while she was on the apheresis machine for like six hours, right? 
um, you know, and, and watching this all happen was just like the whole time I was so emotional. I, you know, just wanted to ball the entire time. I was trying to hold it together for her because I thought, geez, you know, like I don't want her to think, you know, that I'm upset because I'm upset in a, an incredibly joyful, grateful way, right? It, it, I'm sad that obviously she has to go through any of this, but the the gift that she is giving, and she has zero idea of its impact, no matter what, right? No matter the outcome for him, what an incredible gift. And so when we talk about gifts of cancer, that's one of them. Absolutely. Me, right? I was just going to say that you yeah, witnessed. Being in that room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You witnessed, um, like you said, you witnessed courage and you witnessed love at its purest, most honest root where it comes from yep. under the most awful circumstances grows these opportunities to witness pure beauty. And it's not one of those things where you have to look for it. You know, you don't have to look, look for the light. Look, no, it's right in front of you. It's right That's there. It. You, you don't have to search and you can't deny what a life-changing experience that was for your entire family Agreed. to go through. So it explains why you've turned this into such a force. It explains why you are so motivated to share that light with so many families now that you're on the other side because you have these experiences that completely altered who you are. It's actually, it's funny, you know, I just, I just came back from a, a pediatric um, oncology uh, meeting. We've created this new national organization called Access, which is pretty amazing, and I'm, I'm grateful to be part of it. So we were in Toronto for, for three days talking about, uh, you know, all the gaps in, in childhood cancer with, um, you know, clinicians and researchers and persons with lived experience, survivors, parents, you know. And uh, one of the moms who's been the driving force, Adrian Kodar, in this had drawn in, in part of the application, right, to get the funding for all this. She had drawn this sort of path of cancer and it's all squiggly lines yeah. and it's just like all over the place. And I thought, well, that actually is kind of the epitome or the essence of all of it. And they had, you know, three relapses and whatever. But essentially, you know, it isn't linear, right? And it's all over the place and it's complete chaos, right? And you can still survive it. And you can still get through it and still be okay. Well, ultimately, that squiggly line, if you took the word cancer out of it and just put the word life on it, mm, it would be the same thing, right? True story. I don't yeah. know why we think that life is linear, why we think that our experiences, our human experience is going to be linear. I don't know where we got that idea because without a doubt, and take this as you want it, but without a doubt, every single person is going to be faced at some point in their life with a massive fracture, with a massive change, a trauma. It will happen. Totally. Ours happened through our children and ours happened mm-hmm. when they were young. Mm-hmm. And that throws you off because we're so conditioned to think that these big things happen you know, later on in life when you're adults and when you're able to maybe handle it. Do you know what's really fascinating though? Like I, so I do quite a bit of work in the disability community too, of course. And so I'm on the special education advisory committee representative for our local school board for um, the Ontario Parents of Visually Impaired Children, which I also sit on the board for. And they, um, we did a, a, where we had a a workshop on uh, trauma-informed education. 
And it was really sort of my first, you know, sort of true understanding of what trauma-informed anything is, really. What does that mean? And I had never really thought of, you know, some of the things that happened to me in my childhood as trauma. And yet in this presentation, they had like seven sort of major life events that could happen to you. And there were things that were like, of course, death, you know, significant death in the family. You know, it could be an illness. It could be, um, you know, divorce. Uh, it could be, you know, you um, ha were um, bullied, you know, abused, right? Abused, bullied. Exactly. Yeah. So it's all these things. And you see, they said, if you had three or more of these things sort of happen to you, it was enough to be considered significant, you know, childhood trauma and affect, you know, your whole life going forward and how you process things. And I, I sat there like trying not to laugh. because I was like, oh, geez, I've got like five things on the list, right? Like, how is that even possible? How am I even standing here, you know, today and, and really okay, given everything. But, but I do think, you know, it comes down to that, you know, we are all incredibly resilient beings, right? And if we are, you know, in a position where we are able to sort of get through those things and come to the other side um, and hopefully find ways to process it. It may not be therapy for everybody, yeah. you know, it, it might be any number of other ways, but you're able to sort of get through that and recognize that you have to do something for yourself to sort of recenter and refocus where you want to go with your life and the choices that you want to make, right, because of it. I think, you know, that, that you're right. It's like, it's, everybody has something. Everybody right? has it. Something. And I think it was you I know it was you who said to me early on, if trauma was a contest, mm. no one would win. It's true. Everyone's going to experience it. And I think mm -hmm. that as parents in this community, we might, we might assume, you know, this is, this might win. You know, if we were to line up someone's grandparent dying and your child getting cancer, I'm going to go on record and say that I feel pretty confident that this is fair, but yeah. it also doesn't matter because the right. way it affects you and what you do with it is what matters. Right. Right. And so I don't, um, I don't have any, I don't compare anymore. I went through a phase, I think where I felt very angry at people who had these seemingly normal lives and there wasn't any, a visual apparent uh, trauma in their life. But what right. the heck do I know? You know, what do I right. know? How do I know exactly. that they aren't struggling? We don't know that about anybody. And, well, and and even every person too, Sam, like I think every person processes it so differently. Yeah. And what would be considered, you know, like if I go back in time, what I would have considered to be super challenging and very difficult, right? In the moments before cancer, my perspective completely shifted and changed after cancer, right? Having the conversations that I have with Abby, having conversations with the doctors where they tell me maybe we're coming to a time when we shouldn't treat my, my child and cause him sudden pain you know, or more pain or sudden death. Like that definitely ranks up there with some of the worst possible stuff that's ever happened in my life. Yeah. And that, when I compare it to the Dawn before cancer, who thought, you know, trying to wean my child from breastfeeding and she would never take a bottle or whatever it was that was like at the time so big, they're, they, you really can't compare them. 
right? Truly, they're so in such different realms. So even comparing my own trauma or difficulties to, you know, my own later, it, they're just, they're like night and day. So I'm in the same boat. I was angry. I would, people would say to me, like, especially during the pandemic, I did, I was in the throes of treatment and I felt angry sometimes. What are you complaining about? You sitting at home with your healthy child while I am sitting in the hospital, right? With my blind, you know, child, who, you know, has just had 23 intrathecal, you know, chemo sessions in his back, right? And and I'm being told that there is no treatment at the moment that for sure is going to cure him or get him back into remission so he can be cured with a stem cell transplant. Like, you know, like, I'm sorry, but no. You like, got to let yourself have that rage. Right? You have to let and yourself you do, have that right? anger. Yes. And then you take a deep breath and yes. you go, okay, like, what is that going to serve? Right. Right. Like those people are struggling. They're struggling in their own way because they don't they don't live in your world. They don't understand. And thank God for that. Like that's good right. for them that they don't have to. Right. So, you know, even like this is I I'm, you know, all over social media, I'm in a bunch of support groups and it's not uncommon for, you know, uh me to see something from time to time where a, a parent has a child going through cancer who's having vision loss, right? Mm. Significant vision loss or whatever. And it's not that common, but it, it's common enough that when I see it, I usually go over and I say, I sincerely hope that your child, right, recovers their vision. Like I start there because I really do. Yeah. If, uh, if my kid is blind and I'm finding blessings in it, it doesn't mean that you will or that you have to, right? So, you know, that's one thing. And I, I of course, if I could go back and undo it, I, I of course would give him sight, right? If I could, I mean, any parent would, right? You want your kid to be whole. You want them to have all the, you know, equipment that they need to go forward and have an easy life. So, but then I also say, and I can tell you, right, with experience, that blindness isn't the worst thing that can happen to your child, oh. that they can go on to have a big, beautiful, blind life. There are resources, right? And and it is entirely possible for them to go on and do incredible things that you never imagined they would be able to do with blindness, right? That's such a um, gift, Don. That is such a gift that you'll give. You give strangers, complete strangers. And I think that's where I'd like to direct us is how you have turned this experience into such advocacy, awareness, and genuine support for families, not only in the cancer community, but also in the blind community. Can you talk a little bit about where you are right now and what your goal is, like where you want all of your advocacy to go? What do you want the result of this to be, your legacy? Yeah, well, you know, I started it because I felt like, you know, we learned a lot of things kind of by accident, right, through through cancer and stem cell transplant and blindness. And I felt like there weren't a lot of resources out there. There weren't a lot of parents that were out there talking about the good and the bad, yeah. right, that come out of all of this and that that was necessary to share some hope and to share some lessons learned. Um, and people take from it what they what they want, right? And like everything I put out there isn't necessarily, you know, useful to everyone. That's just the way it is. But if you get a nugget out of it, then great, you know, good for you. Um, stuff that I kind of wish that was out there more when I was thinking, right? So that's how we started. Um, and, you know, I I was lucky enough. I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a social media fiend, I'll admit it. You know, I'm, I'm out there everywhere and, and I'm interested in people and stories. Uh, and I have a communications and marketing background as well. So there's always sort of that aspect of it that, that makes all of this sort of fascinating to me, how people 
you know, sort of tell their stories. Um, and so, you know, and I was surprised when we did our blog that so many people followed us, mm -hmm. right? Like if you look at the last, you know, four years of the blog, and I wrote 186 blog posts to date um, in four years, and there are 445,000 views of, wow. the, of the blog. I know, right? I'm like, how is it possible that our little story resonates that much and around the world, right? It's not just domestic. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so so clearly there is a an interest and need. Um, I'm hoping a lot of those views were parents like me who were looking for information. Some of it might just be curiosity seekers. Some of it's just family and friends who followed along, right? As yeah, we but almost half it. a million people. That's a following. Those people. It's a lot. That's a following. Right? Yeah. And so, so it tells me that there's definitely a need for this kind of information out there. And so when we started to do some of the advocacy, it's just really small to begin with, right? It was like, okay, well, you know, blood, right? I think we actually really started there with, with donations of blood because when we were in the throes of it, it was the pandemic, it was June of 2020, and we were waiting for, you know, Ollie to get back into remission to get a stem cell transplant. And there was a very good short, big shortage of blood. Um, and I started myself going out to be a donor at that point. I donated maybe a couple times in the past, but like the distant past. And I felt hopeless. I felt helpless yeah. as I waited. Right. And so what can I do? I can give blood. This is something I can do. It's tangible. And so I thought, well, I'll go get blood and then I'll tweet about it and I'll, you know, put it out on social media and tell people that people like my Ollie desperately need it to survive. Right. And so you need to go out if you can and give blood yeah. because you have zero idea when you're going to need it or when somebody you love is going to need it. And it kind of started there. And then, you know, Canadian Blood Services heard Abby did a guest blog um, on my on my blog at one point about um, she's a, a writer, too. She's a really great writer. Um, and so she did a guest blog about. Uh, you know how she was upset that people were out there, you know, in the pandemic um you know complaining about masking or not masking or not protecting each other um and imagine you know how you would feel if it was your brother yeah. right out there who was fighting for his life and how much he had to sacrifice and give up and whatever every single day long before the pandemic started and how many people out there are just like him right and how we all need to do better and you know and i was like wow it was very profound right for, for a 12 year old to write this and she had already you know donated her some cells and he hadn't gotten them yet and and so um, a friend of mine who uh, works for CBC sent me a message and said, I have a producer friend, right, who's been following your blog and read Abby's piece. And they're wondering if she'd be interested in doing, you know, an opinion piece mm -hmm. um, for CBC. Um, and so I talked to Abby and I you know, tried to school her a little bit. I was like, he's going to be out there forever, right? If you yeah. put it out there, I'm just telling you, just like, Connie did the blog, but the blog has a fairly small following and whatever in the big scheme of things, you know, but if you put it out there in, in media, it's always going to be there. And she wanted to do it anyway. It was actually interesting because she was 12 years old and she, she was published nationally and it was on the national, right? On the news. And, you know, that night we were shocked, actually, because they had come and done a video and everything else uh, related to it, having her read her letter to Ollie uh, on on uh, on video. And so um, and then and then she got paid for it to boot, right? Two hundred fifty seven dollar check for a 12 year old. Good for her. Opinion. Yeah, pretty amazing. Right. Her first her first paid writing gig national. I was like, geez, that's going to be hard to top. Um, but, you know, it's it's so we started doing this. And so Canadian Blood Services was like, well, here, would she do a piece with us? And, you know, we'll interview her and whatever. And so she started doing some advocacy there. And I did some with Ollie as well. And then it was, you know, uh, things just sort of spiraled. Right. We we started getting these opportunities here. Come do this little third party fundraiser for Chio because they've been so good to you. Yeah, sure. We'll lend Ollie's story as long as he's cool with it. And, you know, it just sort of started 
um, every time I turned around, some new opportunity kind of came along that I could get involved in. It, in most cases, it wasn't me looking to become an advocate. It was just, here's an opportunity, right? And we're going to share some of our story and maybe it will do some good. And I have to tell you, like, it's funny because I worry sometimes people think, oh, Dawn, she's just doing it for ego and blah, 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 or, you know, for her kid to be the poster child of everything. And I've had many conversations with my therapist about this. And she's like, you're doing good. Yeah. It's really okay. Right. <laughs> like, but, you know, ultimately, I, I've been really humbled by many of the messages that I've gotten back from people, you know, people who have sent me messages saying, you know, they were having, you know, a lot of trouble um, you know, sort of processing and getting through, you know, their own child's cancer journey or, you know, adapting to blindness or whatever it might be um, and sort of found our story and, you know, were really, um, they had hope, right? And they were grateful. So, I, you know, that's why we keep sharing it. I, I kind of keep joking and saying, okay, like at some point, they're going to get tired of hearing about us, right? See, <laughs> like, I don't want us to do this anymore, but... I have to, I have to say, do you feel... Do you get any fatigue staying in the cancer world? Do you ever feel like I just want to, like your husband put it in my backpack? Or have you found a way to integrate it into your life so that it is part of your life? It doesn't define it, but that it's part of your life and it has become a cause for you that you keep being able to fuel somehow. I think, you know, there are moments, of course, where you feel overwhelmed by it or you feel like you need a break when you do a lot, right? It does happen where you get to a point where you're like, okay, maybe I need to like take a step back from this just for a little bit, right? Give myself some downtime. So there is that. But I, but for the most part, I find it energizing, Good. right? I find it, you know, I find it empowering. I find that it makes me feel like all of the agony and the bad stuff that we had to go through was for something because at the end of the day, okay, it was for something because he's alive, but why do you have to go through any of it in the first place? Yeah. Right? There's this wonderful and, quote, uh, was it worth it? No, but then don't make it worthless. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's totally it, right? It makes it meaningful somehow. There's yeah. meaning behind why we had to go through all of this, all the things that we have learned the ability that we have now to influence things for the better in both worlds. And it's, it's really interesting. I kind of, you know, I believe, you know, that everything is kind of preordained, right. To happen the way that it, it it's supposed to, and whether you believe in, you know, uh, uh, you know, if you have faith and, and believe in, in some deity or, or you believe it's just the universe, whatever it is that you believe, I think it's really fascinating because I don't think any of it is by accident. Right. And so, you know, when I take a look at it, I find it very fascinating that all these opportunities and all these things sort of keep presenting themselves in front of me, right? Yes. And so I feel like those are signs that we're supposed to do this work. And it's interesting because in this access, you know, we're working on, and I'm working on the education and training theme. And it, the reason I specifically chose this one is because I feel like, you know, we're just thrown into into this, right? You just you you don't have any training, you don't have no any experience. You have there's nothing, right? You're not equipped in any way. It's just if you're lucky enough to have some skill sets that might lend themselves to allowing you to get through some of this, then great. But honestly, most of us are just flying blind, literally. You know, in this particular case, um, not having any clue of what's coming at us or where we're going or how to do any of it. And I feel like we can do a better job. I don't think you can prepare people for everything in cancer. It is what it is, right? Stuff is going to happen. But if you can give them some basics, if you can, you know, give them a hand to hold, right, from the outset, 
um, so that they don't feel so alone when it comes to all of this. That's ultimately, you know, I think, such a, a great goal and something that's very accomplishable. You know? Well, so- let me just say you did that for me. When we were first diagnosed, I made my first phone call to my best friend. And oh, it makes me emotional thinking about it because talk about meant to be, talk about no accidents. You had just met her at yep. a family camp through CNIB because Ollie was there and and her daughter was there and you two connected. And I called her and said, Ellie has just been diagnosed with cancer. I don't know what to do. And she said, here's Don's phone number, call Don. (laughs) And we were strangers Mm -hmm. and I called you. And within two seconds, we weren't only connected, we were teammates. We were in the same boat. You were the first person to greet me on this new planet that no one wants to be on. But if we're here, we might as well come together. You know, we might as well find each other. And so when you talk about the hope that you give families and how that energizes you, I hope you know, not only did you guide me, but you remain a guide and an inspiration what you have done and how you have turned the darkest of dark into so much beauty for your family and for this community. Dawn, it's remarkable. And I am so grateful from the bottom of my heart that you were there to answer that call and to stay with us through all of treatment. It was a gift that I'll never be able to really thank you enough for, except to, in my own way, hopefully give parents what you gave me, you know? So I I fully attribute this podcast and these conversations to how you showed me support and and hope in the early stages. And so this is my way of paying that back, hopefully to families who who were just as lost as I was. I think you're awesome. I'm so (laughs) very grateful for your kind words, Sam. And and I'm I'm so proud of you. I hope that doesn't sound condescending, but doesn't it's it's you know, it, it's it, it's very validating, right? To to hear words like that, not for my ego, but to know that we're doing the right thing. Oh, this is right? ego. And this is soul. I, I think I think we all, you know, have to go back to that basis of being humans, right, yeah. and being humane. I believe that we're all connected, right, to each other, um, and sometimes we're connected for reasons we have no idea, right, about. And so, you know, for me. Um, it is. It's. It, I feel so great that we were able to help you in a very small way. Honestly, it was a conversation, right? No, and it wasn't a few small. resources that we said. But you know, but it, it, this is the point, and I guess this is what I the point that I want to make when it comes to advocacy, right? The little gestures yeah. are huge, right? The little things. You know, it's it's really not that big of a deal to have a couple of text chats with somebody or to get on the phone and talk to somebody for you know half hour, an hour out of your day if it's going to help them. And obviously right? It has helped you. And, and, you know, throughout it has connected us. And, you know, I, of course, recently saw some of the stuff that you and Ellie have done, you know, to, to do some, to, to give some help to a, a local, you know, a, a provincial organization. Um, and, you know, and I, I thought that was so beautiful when I got it in the mail, right? I, it, it was like, I was so proud because, you know, 
the tiny little bit that I have done to try and, and help you guys because I care about you as a human being and because you're the friend of my friend and now my friend, you know, that was like so wonderful. And it, it validates the work that I'm doing with access and other areas of childhood cancer because, you know, we're trying to help parents to learn how to advocate for their child first and foremost, because that's the most important but then also potentially to take what they've learned and be advocates for childhood cancer. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're doing. And I didn't school you in any of that, right? All I did was spend a little time with you and become your friend and somebody that you felt that you could connect with, right, on a similar level. And I wish there was a better word for it. You're talking about teammates. I think that's great. I, I, I mean, among the women, I jokingly call it the cancer mama sisterhood because it really is. It it's really a sisterhood. is. Yeah. But there are dads in there too, right? I'm very mindful of that. I've got some dads in there that I've connected with too. And I, so I, I'm like, it's a parenthood. But parenthood is kind of a word that we use in a different way, right? Like to talk about our individual journey through parenthood. When really, it is a parenthood. It's a neighborhood of parents all working together. So it's like a cancer parenthood, I suppose, is what it is. Um, but that's, it's so beautiful. I've never, in, in all the parents I've met, and I have met a lot of parents, you know, in the last uh, few years that we've been doing this, and I, I haven't met a single one, right, that didn't in some way, you know, sort of do what they could to pay it forward when they were done, right? Even if it was quietly, even if it was quietly, Right. Some of us don't do it as publicly, but they do something. I, I find that really fascinating. Even the parents who think, I want to just forget this ever happened. I want to put it in my backpack and never look back. They even find a way to process it and make something worth, you know, so that it's not worthless. They, they find a way to process it so that it can help other people. I find that, I find that very inspiring. Like Dawn said in our interview, she is very active on social media and she really loves to reach out and connect with our community. So I'll link her social media account in the notes if you'd like to find Dawn. And while you're there in the notes, take a look at all the organizations that she supports. And if you're at a stage where you're feeling motivated to get involved, connect with Dawn for guidance in where our community needs extra hands right now. And if you're nowhere near that stage, and quite frankly, can't ever imagine wanting to stay in this world when your child has done treatment, I totally get that too. I hope you can get as far away as possible if that's what your heart needs to heal. But as you move farther away and your healing takes you on a different path, I just want you to trust deeply that the world you're leaving behind has people like Dawn making sure it's better and easier for the families that come after us. I feel like that might be a nice visual for those who just can't stick around, but need to know that despite how horrific it was here, there are still people like Dawn who will never stop passing buckets of water back to those who are still in the fire. A huge thanks to Ian Blackwood for his beautiful, moving song, Carry Me to Water. Thank you to my dear friend, Kate Mitzi, for the logo design, to the Deep Sea community for the massive love and support, and most of all, to my little girl, 
who taught me that the deeper you dive into the darkness of the ocean, the more buried treasure you will find. Until next time, that's where you'll find me.